What if I told you that sometimes the sand on the beach that you enjoy so much is nothing more than piles of fish poop and dead animals? I wonder if that would reduce the statistics of how many people enjoy using the beach. And another thing that most people do not know is that due to several factors, there is actually a global shortage of sand. And a third seemingly unrelated fact is that nearly 65% of the people in the United States are paying on a loan for their home, while a significant number of people around the world live in a nice home and yet never have any mortgage. So if you want to know how these three things are related, then stick around for episode 102, which is called Building with Nature. Welcome to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. Your host has lived an off-grid, sustainable lifestyle for over 20 years. His homestead is run on solar energy. He has an earth shelter greenhouse and produces much of his own food. And all of this takes place in the middle of the forest in Colorado. Now, let's join Patrick, the man that not only teaches the skills of sustainable living, but lives that life every day. Welcome back, everyone, to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast. This is your host, Patrick, and this is episode 102, which is called Building with Nature. So you might be curious as to why a sand shortage, the construction business, and a home mortgage are all connected in some way. So in this episode, I'm going to first take a little bit, talk a little bit about sand and then explain why there is a global shortage. Then I'm going to relate that to the environmental damage that's caused by the construction business. And finally, I'm going to close and tie the two of these things together to an alternative means of having a wonderful home, never paying a mortgage, and having a more sustainable lifestyle. But first off, let's talk a little bit about sand. Nearly 40% of us enjoy going to the beach because we usually relate that to time off work, vacation, swimming, sunshine, and just plain relaxation. We lay on the beach, we roll in the sand, we dig holes, we build sandcastles and animal figures, and even bury each other under piles of sand. And being a scuba diver, When I am on a dive, I even search through the sand for numerous little critters. But have you ever asked yourself where sand actually comes from, what it is made of, and how long does it take it to form? Where sand comes from and how it is formed depends a lot on where you are in the world and the local geography. The local environment also plays a significant role However, sand basically forms from the breakdown of rocks. Rocks decompose due to weathering and eroding, which takes place over thousands and even millions of years. And this is especially true for quartz and feldspar. But what most don't know is that sand is actually formed from rocks that originate thousands of miles from the ocean. As rocks travel and bump along their way downstream, 
they are constantly eroded. And once in the ocean, the erosion continues due to the actions of waves and tides. The typical brown sand beaches that most of us see is the result of iron oxide, which tints quartz a light brown, and feldspar, which is brown to tan in color. But the black sand beaches in Hawaii and other locations are typically the result of the breakdown of volcanic rock, basalt, as well as some other minerals. And the pink beaches in Bermuda are the result of the continued decay of single-celled organisms that have a pink shell. But there is actually a much lesser known way that sand is formed that would surprise many people. The famous white sand beaches in Hawaii are actually made of fish poop. Yes, that's right. It is just piles of fish poop. The parrotfish, which I commonly see when I go diving, tend to bite and scrape algae from the rocks and dead corals, and through their digestive process, they grind up the inedible calcium carbonate from the reef material and excrete it as sand. This natural process helps to maintain a diverse coral reef ecosystem and parrotfish can actually produce hundreds of pounds of white sand every year. But besides these interesting things, if you get right down to it, there are actually about 21 different types of sand. So here is something to think about. Sand takes thousands to millions of years to form, with the exception when it comes to the parrotfish. So the next time you go to the beach and decide to bury one of your friends in the sand, be sure and tell them that they are getting buried in a big pile of fish poop and maybe even parts of dead animals. But as you likely know by now, I love these kinds of details because in so many ways it makes you appreciate the environment that is around you. But knowing all of this, you have to wonder, how could there possibly be a shortage of sand? Sand is by far one of the most commonly used natural materials, simply because of its widespread applications in construction and industry. It is used on highways to increase traction. It's used to make concrete, used in paints, as an environmental cleanup material. It's used in agriculture to grow certain types of crops. It's used as a road base. It's used to make sandpaper, of course, molding, bricks. It's used to making glass in the automobile and food industry. And it's even used to make plaster, mortar, asphalt, and also to form clay. So as you can see, we actually use massive amounts of sand for just about everything. But it is actually by far one of the planet's most commonly mined materials and approximately 50 billion tons per year are extracted from lakes, riverbeds, coastlines, and deltas. And because it is so useful, as our cities continue to grow and urban areas expand, the demand for sand, of course, also increases. But despite this, Sand mining around the globe faces little to no government scrutiny. And because it takes sand thousands to millions of years to form, 
It is of course being extracted much faster than it can be replaced. And the result is extensive environmental damage, eroded coastlines, habitat destruction and ecosystem collapse, and in some cases, small islands are being completely wiped off the map. And in some areas, the damage is so extensive, it can be seen on satellite images. And this is not a problem just in a few isolated countries. It is in fact a problem for every single country on the planet. But as you can guess, I think with sand being such a widely used material in the construction industry, I think it goes without saying that the environmental damage goes well beyond the mining of sand. The construction industry itself causes extensive environmental problems and in fact, every phase of the building industry causes some sort of environmental damage. So just think about this for a minute. The extraction, transportation, and processing of raw materials. The waste produced in any construction process is enormous and most of that ends up in the landfills. The construction of buildings causes an enormous amount of air and water pollution simply due to the extensive use of chemicals. Transportation during all phases of construction, from the original extraction of raw materials to end-of-life transportation of waste to the landfill, of course increases our consumption of fossil fuels. The construction industry also contributes anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the world's CO2 emissions. And of course, the continued growth causes even further habitat loss and environmental destruction. So all of this being said, our population continues to grow and so does our urban areas. And consequently, the construction industry also continues to grow. So let's just think about this for a minute because I'm almost to the point of trying of tying this together and telling you how to avoid a mortgage. And as you have likely heard me point out before, there's an increased trend toward urbanization. And what urbanization means is simply the transformation of unoccupied or sparsely, sparsely occupied land into densely populated cities. And this is the result of increased human population and migration of people from rural areas to the city. And now there's a lot of reasons for this that's happening, that this is happening, and many of which I've covered in previous episodes. But allow me to give you a little bit of a different perspective on this, because urbanization is one of those things that has a significant environmental impact, and we tend to never really give it a much thought. So for example, urbanization results in habitat loss and deforestation, which in turn decreases biodiversity and increases species loss. Irreparable changes in natural environmental processes, which disturbs and destroys numerous natural life cycles that are vital to the survival of the ecosystems. We see rapid transmission of disease as the result of people living in densely populated areas. Urbanization results in the introduction of invasive species, which even further destroys local habitats. 
urbanization causes increased regional temperatures due to our wonderful little asphalt and concrete jungles and paving with asphalt and concrete increases runoff causing erosion, decreasing soil and water quality due to pollutants. Changes in water cycles through the atmosphere is another thing that we see. Now this is something that most people do not think about, but trees and plants actually return a significant portion of precipitation to the atmosphere through a natural process that's called transpiration. And loss of plant productivity and biomass decreases the amount of water returned to the atmosphere. And this in turn results in drier conditions, which eventually alters the local ecosystem. Now, it should be quite obvious from these examples that urbanization causes a significant amount of environmental impact. But allow me to take a minute and give you a little bit of a different perspective. And let me give you something else to think about. In the United States, urban areas make up only 3% of the entire land area in the country, yet is home to more than 80% of the population. And conversely, 97% of the landmass in our country is comprised of rural areas that only contains 19.3% of the population. So for someone like me, I happen to see that as an advantage since I live in a very rural area anyway. And what that means to me is that there is a whole lot of open space out there to go and enjoy while 80% of our national population is having to live in crowded conditions and deal with a much higher crime rate. Because after all, only one in five Americans lives in a rural area, but at any rate, that's not really the focus of this episode, but I point this out only because urbanization has a significant environmental impact and there is actually a really easy way to avoid that. So what about this idea about not having a mortgage? And how the heck does that relate to what I've been talking about? So to be fair, there are there's actually a number of countries around the world that offer mortgages. However, no country in the world uses the 30-year mortgage like the United States does. But now what most people would say is that there is no way they could purchase a home without a mortgage. And indeed, few people can actually pay cash for a home. So that said, there are plenty of families around the world, and I have met quite a few of them, that live in a nice big home and never have a mortgage. And in fact, not only do they successfully pull this off, but they do this in a sustainable way that is not often seen in the United States. So allow me to introduce you to the concept of bioconstruction. Because this is a method of construction that is not, that not only prevents waste, but is also a lot less expensive. It is sustainable and helps to almost entirely avoid paying a mortgage. And this is how these three topics tie into one another because you can avoid the wastefulness of the construction industry, build a home at a drastically reduced cost, you can drastically reduce your impact on the environment, and even save yourself hundreds 
of thousands of dollars. And if that sounds unbelievable, then I'm also going to give you a very real life example. Because honestly, I just do not understand why more people do not take advantage of this form of construction. And few people, and, and certainly not anyone that I know, actually takes advantage of this. Because most people these days shop for real estate using an agent, or they simply go, go online, and then they apply for a 30-year mortgage, and end up paying three times the original purchase price of the home, and it's almost laughable that people actually consider this to be a good deal. But what most people don't even think about is there is an easy way to avoid this. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it's easy because it takes a lot of time and hard work, but if you consider the fact that you could save yourself literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, it might be worth your consideration. But it's not only that, it's that this method of construction is far less wasteful and far more sustainable. So what exactly is bioconstruction? Very simply put, it is a method of construction that uses both natural and repurposed materials. And design features also take into account the local climate, the local availability of materials, and consequently it has a very, very low environmental impact. So more precisely, bioconstruction seeks to integrate the building into the local environment by taking into account the local climate, landscape, and even the local culture. But obviously this is hardly a new concept. And if you truly wanna see some fantastic examples, all you have to do is look at the animal kingdom. Beaver dams, bird nests, spider webs, beehives, burrow complexes built by rodents, and even enormous termite mounds are all examples of bioconstruction. And interestingly enough, these structures often incorporate various sophisticated features, including temperature regulation, ventilation, special purpose chambers, and even traps to catch the enemy. But as I said, this is hardly a novel idea. Because humans have often used natural materials that are locally available in order to build shelters and even vast complexes of structures. However, this is truly a skill that we have lost over the period of several generations. But before I give you examples of bioconstruction, I first want to get you to thinking about the four basic concepts of this method of building a home, and this is how it all ties in to being more sustainable. First of all, of course, the use of natural materials, or using materials that are as natural as possible. And when harvesting local materials and using them for construction, this whole process must be as respectful of the environment as possible. The building process, of course, must be sustainable, taking into account the environment, economic, and social aspects. Construction materials really should come from renewable sources, and materials should also be locally sourced 
which minimizes transportation and the use of fossil fuels. And the local environment and climate must be taken into account in order to make the structure as efficient as possible. And bioconstruction is also collaborative. And what this means is that people get together and share their labor, their skills, and their knowledge and help one another build a home. And a good example of this is when communities get together and help someone to build a house or to build a barn. And another good example of this is the area that I live in. Because there are very few property owners where I live and even fewer of them actually live there full time. But when one of us has a difficult construction process or project or anything else for that matter, we tend to pool our resources, time and labor and it helps to get the project done in a timely and efficient manner. And lastly, let's talk about the wellness aspect. Because using natural materials and fewer chemicals gives you a much healthier home environment and you can even tailor your home to your physical and emotional needs where everyone has their own space, so to speak. And you can take advantage of natural lighting, natural acoustics and passive solar, all of which create an aspect of wellness that is not typically seen in our modern homes. So in the end, through the use of natural materials, taking a sustainable approach, having a collaborative effort, and building in the wellness aspect, interestingly enough, if you look at these concepts, they relate directly to the three pillars of sustainability, which is people, planet, and profits. So at this point, I want to take just a few minutes, a couple minutes, and give you a couple of very uh, specific examples of bioconstruction, and I'll just quickly run through a few things here. There are things such as earth bag construction, which is a, a mix of sand or gravel that is hardened with clay and packed into some polypropylene or even feed bags and stacked to build a wall, and then they're covered with plaster. And then there's timber framing, and this is a technique that uses heavy timbers that are joined with wooden pegs as opposed to nails and screws, and then the open areas are filled with straw bales, cob, light clay straw, or even any, any of a number of other materials. And then there's straw bale construction, which is where straw bales are literally stacked like bricks in order to build a home. And then there's cob, which is something that I didn't really know anything about, but it's a mixture of sand, clay, and straw that is fairly similar to adobe, and lumps of cob are applied wet in order to build a wall. And then there's post and beam framing, and this is something similar to timber framing, except you're using steel hardware to join larger timbers and this is actually a technique that is much easier for the amateur builder. And then there is light clay straw. And this is where clay is mixed with water to about the consistency of paint. And then loose straw is then mixed in until the straw is all covered. And this is then used to pack into form into forms and wall cavities for insulation. And one of my favorite is the living roof 
and this is a roof structure that actually relies on soil as shelter and insulation, but it also allows plants to grow on top of the roof, and the soil is simply piled on top of a waterproof membrane, and the roof structure is, of course, has to be very sturdy, but you can even use your rooftop as a garden if you wish. Rammed earth is another technique that I actually looked at several years ago and was considering using this technique on my property to build another structure. But this is a technique where earth is pounded into forms to create massive walls that form a house. And this truly uses minimal resources, but is also very, very labor intensive. And one other technique that I want to mention is, of course, log structures, because it's truly my personal favorite. And this is what I did when I first bought the, brought the cabin property. And I certainly have no regrets in how I built the first cabin, but I have to give you fair warning that this type of construction is very, very labor intensive. Because what I did is I excavated a small area for the cabin and the foundation was a mix of concrete and rock and gravel that was used that was taken from the property and i attached recycled railroad ties to the concrete and this is what supports the log structure i then harvested lodgepole pine from the property and i was just simply very selective in where and how i cut timber in order to minimize the impact and additionally, all the logging work that I did was done by hand. And the entire structure was built out of raw materials, and I even milled floorboards using a sawmill that was owned by a friend of mine. And the only construction commercial products that I used was plywood for the roof, the windows of course, and the large steel spikes that are used to hold the logs together. So it truly cost me next to nothing to build this cabin and it has been standing for 26 years and it still looks brand new. Now I am quite certain that there are many other natural building techniques that I've left out but I just really truly wanted to give you a good example. But after all my years on the homestead, you know, I still adhere to the same building techniques that I used to build the cabin. And just recently I added a sunroom to the new cabin and the floor is all brick, which I backfilled the floor and foundation with rock and dirt from the property. So that cost me next to nothing. And the sunroom is about 200 square feet. And due to careful planning, the total waste from this project would fill about three wheelbarrows and 90% of that material was repurposed, so essentially I had almost zero waste. So what I want to do at this point is just to kind of do a quick recap of this discussion and, and of course tie this into some tips on how you can either completely avoid a mortgage or simply have a very short term mortgage like I did. But I also want to show you how this is far more a far more sustainable way to have a home. First of all, for all you beach lovers, you know, it's hard to believe there is a global shortage of sand. And this is because sand is by far one of the more frequently mined natural materials. 
and there is an enormous variety of applications for sand and it is also used in so many more things than you can imagine but especially used in the construction industry and it truly would be difficult to list all the number of products that contain sand that are used even to build a standard home. The mining of sand has little or no government oversight and consequently in some parts of the world the environmental degradation is so extensive it can actually be seen on satellite images. So once again it really truly comes down to all of us being mindful of what we do and what we purchase. But overall, the environmental cost of, constru of the construction industry cannot be overlooked. From waste products to use of fossil fuels, CO2 emissions, habitat degradation, toxic chemicals, the list goes on. And this is especially true for our nonstop urbanization. And one figure that I find so hard to believe is that in the United States, urban areas make up only 3% of the entire land area in the country, yet are home to more than 80% of the population. But I do have to tell you for someone like me, that kind of statistic makes me jump for joy. Because what it means to me is that there's plenty of places with few people. There's plenty of places with peace and quiet and lots of room to enjoy nature. But while people are flocking to urban areas and paying a much higher cost of living and dealing with a higher crime rate, there is a much more sustainable way to live that costs far less. And not only that, if you're smart about it, you may very well be able to completely avoid a mortgage. And I'm gonna tell you exactly how you can do that. In my experience, most people stick to the norms of society and tend to do what 90% of the rest of the world is doing. But that said, just because everyone is doing something a certain way doesn't necessarily make it the right way. And oftentimes there is another way to approach something, a better way, a less expensive way, and of course, a much more sustainable way and as I have already discussed in previous episodes, focusing on sustainability is a lot less expensive than living in mainstream. And that is exactly where bioconstruction comes in. Just simply taking advantage of local resources is often far less expensive than using commercial construction materials. And furthermore, integrating the building into the local environment as well as taking into account the local climate, landscape, and culture often has much less of an environmental impact. And here is the best part. These are the types of structures that can easily be built over time. And consequently, you can avoid a mortgage. And this is in fact what I have done on my property since I purchased it. Now, granted, I did have a mortgage on the land, but that was paid off in 12 years. But however, every structure on my property was built a little at a time, and I paid cash for all improvements. So for example, I actually paid someone to frame in the new cabin and at least get it closed in, 
And prior to that, I completed the, the foundation work and I installed the underground cistern. And then over a period of about two years, I finished the interior, I added a large deck, and installed the solar. And most recently, of course, I added the sunroom. And I did the foundation for work, the foundation work for that last year, and did the majority of the construction this year. So what I did is I just saved money and I waited until I could pay cash for everything. And by doing things in this way, I actually built this sunroom for about one-fifth of the cost compared to paying someone else to do the work for me, and consequently, I avoided borrowing any money at all. And this is exactly how many, many people around the world have a nice home and no mortgage. They start with something small, they use locally obtained materials and bioconstruction techniques, they pay cash as they go, and eventually end up with a very nice home that is completely paid for. And right about now, some of you are likely thinking that I'm a bit crazy because not everyone has the ability to build their own home. But that being said, allow me to give you a little bit of a different perspective. In so many ways in our culture, other people are making millions and millions of dollars at your expense. But this is partially the result of our addiction to convenience and we don't want to take the time and effort to do things for ourselves. Nor do we want to take the time and effort required to learn new skills so that we can do things for ourselves. But the problem with this, where this problem actually started, is this ingrained belief, or perhaps it's an ingrained cultural norm, that every homeowner should have a large home with a nice private yard. And additionally, with every generation that follows, success in our culture is defined as upward, and every generation wants a slightly larger home. And what most people today do not realize is that idea was actually set in our minds and in our culture during a period of rapid expansion and relatively inexpensive land that was close to urban areas. But what most younger generations these days don't realize is that during the post-war boom that started in the early 1900s, large chunks of cheap land were available in places that were easy to build. And not only that, building materials were much less expensive. And the result of this was that builders focused on a highly standardized, lucrative product. And if you want to see good examples of this, then look up Levittown on the web, and it is essentially the start of what I tend to call cookie cutter homes, meaning that they all look pretty much the same, and this is a standard practice these days for developing any new subdivision, and all the houses look very similar, the neighborhoods are crowded, and the real estate is simply not cheap. So now what I want to point out is going to seem totally counterintuitive. Because in our modern industrial age and with our wonderful advanced technology, 
it may seem rather odd to consider going back to older building techniques. But when you consider that the building industry represents 45% of global energy consumption and 30% of the waste generated in the world, obviously something needs to change. And by contrast, bioconstruction techniques typically use about 5% of what modern techniques require in order to build a home, and it generates little to no waste. And there are even further benefits. When you use bioconstruction, and you are intimately involved in the entire process of building your home, I can say from personal experience that you are much more conscious and responsible for your way of living. Because what it really truly comes down to is that when you build a home that respects the environment, when you are conscious of watershed issues, perhaps you collect rainwater, when you focus on consuming less, when you keep a garden, when you separate your trash, you recycle, and you live in a home that is much more comfortable and energy efficient, your consciousness really truly starts to evolve. You now have the pleasure of having a home and not just a house. And in fact, there is a huge opportunity here because so much knowledge has been lost while half the world's population lives in urban centers and bioconstruction in many ways forces us to go back to our roots. We start to focus on the environment. We approach nature from the perspective of harmony instead of take, make, and dispose. And it may seem odd to think of sand as a valuable commodity, even if some of it is simply fish poop, but it is just another example of how we are depleting our planet of valuable natural resources that cannot be replaced in our lifetimes. The construction industry takes a hefty toll on the environment and we can easily have a huge impact on that by simply embracing the concepts of bioconstruction and taking an active part in building our own home. Because by doing so, we start to see those buildings as our homes and not just a house. And from there, we can start to be more responsible for the impact that we have on the planet. And we share our experiences in a like community. And from there, we start to change the paradigm. Our thinking starts to evolve, and so does the thinking of the next generation. And that is how we change the world. The Chinese philosopher Confucius once said, if, you plan, if your plan is for one year, then plant rice. If your plan is for 10 years, then plant trees. If your plan is for 100 years, then educate children. So truly, educating children and educating the next generation is by far the best way to change our future on this planet. And not only that, but being openly being a living example of sustainability so that other people start to ask you why you do things the way you do. 
Well, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this episode because that is it for this week. And if you truly enjoy the material that I produce, then please don't forget to take the time to leave me with a review as well as subscribe to the Adventures in Sustainable Living podcast and my companion blog, Off Grid Living News. So I hope you will join me again next week. And until then, this is your host, Patrick, signing off. Always remember to live sustainably because this is how we build a better future.